welcome to Men Are Nuts, a podcast about mental health, emotional health, psychological health, physical health, awareness in men, women and society. First, it started with MAN, the acronym for Men Are Nuts. And we have a very special guest on the show for you today in a place that is can get as hot as where I live. A place, <laughs> a place is, that's acknowledged as Down Under. Can you introduce yourself? <laughs> I'm Lauren. I, yes, live in Canberra, the capital of Australia, and I live with chronic illness. So I'm going to talk a bit about that and the impact on my mental health. Wow, wow. So, Canberra. Um, quite often through the years, people have said, always thought, Sydney. Is a, you know, they have these, yes. they have these um, quiz shows, don't they? And that's one of the questions. What yes, the every time. It gets people every single time. I think it's mainly because. Why do you think that is? Do you think it's mainly because certain. It's the biggest city. Yeah. It's our biggest city. Yeah. 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 Canberra. Yeah. Not not so big. (laughs) It's like a big country town. And how's your morning going? How's I mean we spoke earlier, but I mean just. Yes, it's five p.m. here, ten a.m. there, so it's my evening here now, and I've had a pretty relaxing day, just getting my hair done, which is lovely. Um, You know, I'm a big believer in. Look good, a feel good. Prerogative, a so, prerogative to get ahead. Yeah, well, I, like I said, big believer in look good, feel good. So, managing how I look, you know, has a massive impact on my mental health. So, you know, I like to, you know, look after myself and hopefully not look as horrendous as I feel. That's the goal. <laughs> yeah, and I can't um, for the listeners out there. I can't see it, but like, there's a picture of her and. I'm presuming you have that amount of hair that you've got now because there's an abundance of hair in that picture. It's extensions. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) It's all part of the illusion, see? Andrew, I have to try and, you know, maintain this illusion that I'm not falling apart on the inside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. And that's it. It's about... When we talk about mental health, is we get to a point where, where we, if we're struggling with things that are that affect us inside, whether it's mentally or physically, and even both, we have to try and we have to try and maintain an outlook. That you know, make sure that we smile and 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 put up, keep up with appearance in a sense to to make ourselves. It's like better. fake it till you make it. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, like, I'm, it sounds horrible because, I mean, part of it is masking, essentially. And that's exhausting in itself. And you don't want to be masking all the time and around your loved ones and stuff. But we do to an extent. And that's exhausting um, because if we got around just, you know, telling everyone how awful we felt all the time, I mean, no one would want to be around us. We'd be sitting up pretty lonely. Yeah, <laughs> no one wants yeah. to be around that person. Yeah. But um, also, if you do that, you just fall apart you go deeper down the hole and you know you just feel yourself slipping and so you know if you smile more and if you try and put on that brave face and if you get out of bed and you wash your face and you brush your teeth and you just do these little bits you know you genuinely start to feel better little bits just the little bits you're not going to solve everything you're not going to cure depression by doing it but you're certainly not going to fall deeper, deeper down the hole if you do those little things, I find anyway, yeah, certainly. No. And I know a lot of people who are the same way. Yeah, that's true. And, and that's true of, like you say, whether whether it's physical or mental or both health, because someone who may be struggling to get a job or is unemployed 
um, there's often calls to be said to get out, you know, fake it till you make, get out of bed, wash your face. Yeah. All those things yeah. that have an impact to your day rather than lying around and lounging and not yeah. doing anything. And sometimes those little things, just getting out of bed, seem impossible. Yeah. It's like to someone who's never suffered from depression, like they're like, what the hell? Like, just get out of bed. Oh no, that can be a mammoth task. But if you do it, and especially when you're suffering physical pain as well as mental pain, it is like the Olympics, getting ready in the morning, just washing your face, just brushing your teeth, making a cup of coffee. But when you do it, it goes a long way. <laughs> yes, you end up winning the medal in the end. Yes, that's... Um, yeah. I like yeah. the analogy. Yeah. That's quite good. Um, let's... Let, what's um, Canberra? What's it... I mean, have you yes. all lived there? What's it like to live there? Yeah, so I was born in Canberra, so I've lived here basically my whole life. Um, it's, like I said, it's a big country town. Obviously, our government is based here, so it's predominantly government employees here. It's quite an affluent town. It's a highly educated town, so it's quite a stuffy town. Um, but I love living here, ultimately. Like, you know, people around Australia will always scoff at Canberra, say, oh, nothing ever happens there, it's boring. It's not that boring. Things happen here, but it's it's safe. It's a little bubble. It can be a bit insular like that, but, you know, um, growing up here, it was always safe to go out and play with, you know, my friends and my cousin, who's very dear to me. We used to spend, you know, days on end out on the streets riding our bikes and all of that. It was completely safe to do that. So it's, yeah, it's a really safe sort of insular community vibe here in Canberra and, you know, very hot summers, very cold winters. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a nice place to live. I do enjoy it. But ugh, from a healthcare perspective, you cannot believe living in a capital city. It would be so hard to access healthcare here. I have to travel three hours to Sydney, our biggest city, um, each way. So six hour trip. The capital. Um, <laughs> our fake capital, Sydney. <laughs> Um, often to access healthcare because we're so short on specialists here in Canberra and, um, you know, we either don't have the specialist or their books are closed because they have too many patients and it's just a travesty. For example, um, my psychiatrist retired, excuse me, and I could not get into another psychiatrist here in Canberra so I had to start seeing one in Sydney and he dumped me. And so I had to get a new psychiatrist. And once again, books completely closed in Canberra. There are no psychiatrists taking new patients in Canberra. And I've been on a wait list for six months to get into one in Sydney. And I just find that a complete travesty in a capital city of a developed country that I can't access psychiatry. Like, that is just crazy to me. Is that right healthcare profession is it is that with other parts of the health not just psychiatry is it other things that's yeah it's 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 across the board basically in canberra and it's all to do with our hospital here because you know majority of specialists will work in the public and private system they won't obviously just work in their private rooms and so they will work in the main hospital in the district which here is canberra hospital and Canberra Hospital upset a lot of specialists back in the day 
and so specialists won't come and work in Canberra anymore and live in Canberra so we can't attract the specialists anymore so you just can't get them there's just a massive shortage it's crazy it's crazy um so yeah it's across the board but from a mental health perspective Canberra is not a place you want to have mental health issues it's very sad so unless I turn up an emergency our emergency department saying basically I'm going to harm myself or someone else and they admit me to a psych ward and give me a psychiatrist that way I'm not getting one and for anyone out there who's ever been in a psych ward you know that you're not going to want to do that (laughs) especially a public psych ward not a fun time so Australia before before we start talking about mental health and and, uh, yes Australia. What for the listeners out there who who may not have heard of Australia, because um, this podcast will be going around the world. Uh, yes. Who may want to get a feel for the place and and maybe want to travel there or um, uh-huh. live there. When borders open. Yeah, yes. When borders open. Um, <laughs> One day. What's it? What's what? What has come from Australia? What famous? I know there's you know there's, I know there's a rugby team and things like that. I know that because I'm in sports, but. Yeah, we have we have a big sporting country. Yes. Yeah, tell us this is what's out. You know what what's famous from there. Um. So apart from prisoner cell block H. What? <laughs> Sorry. Apart from prisoner cell block H. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow, you're putting me on the spot. Um. So obviously we have actors and such like you know Nicole Kidman and Mel Gibson. Uh, I don't know. Um. Sorry, anyone who likes Mad Max. Um, oh, let me think. Yeah, that's interesting. People don't realise that he came from there. No. Yes. Yes, that, that he's popular, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Great. Um, Neighbours. Shall we sing along? Yeah. <laughs> no, we shall not. Uh, <laughs> Um, apparently the black box, you know, in aeroplanes was invented in Australia. Oh, was it really? Yeah, there you go. Bit of information there. Um, our money, our currency, the plastic banknotes we used are the most advanced in the world. They're like almost completely impossible to counterfeit. So there you go. Bit of, bit of that information there for you. We were the first country I believe to give women the vote I think don't quote me on that <laughs> one or if not the first I won't, I don't get, yeah I don't, don't know really think on the spot like where the history of Australia what we've done yeah but um one thing that going back to healthcare, we have universal healthcare in this country yeah. um which is a blessing because obviously there are places like the states that don't have that yeah. and um, sadly, it's being a bit dismantled at the moment with our current government. And so for Australian listeners out there who will hopefully tune in and listen to this, um, you know, I'm a massive advocate for universal health care and I have private health insurance, but I wish I didn't need it. And, um, you know, especially where mental health is concerned, there just never is enough funding in mental health in the public sphere. And, um you know, I just, it breaks my heart that, you know, around the world there's not enough, you know, in terms of mental health yeah. out there for people. And to see things being dismantled a bit here is just, you know, in public health, it's like, oh my God, but we have so little already in terms of help for mental health. And I know it's 
you know, across the board. It's not just here. And so it's like, oh, my God, no, not that too, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, God, I can't imagine the impacts. So do you think, that is scary to me. Do you think, do you think that... Um, I mean, this, I'm just not going to be controversial or anything like that, but Australia, Australia has always had this image of... Um, I say it's, I can't say it's always had the same, but there's, there's an image of Australia with big, burly men and tough and yeah. all that sort of stuff. And do you think that I don't know if that's if that what could be one of the reasons why mental health hasn't I'm not saying taken off there or is is yeah. Do you know what I mean? Maybe that image of the, the we're tough and and you know you know you thieving galah. <laughs> no, no. But, <laughs> I think that has a has a big part of it um, and only in sort of recent years have campaigns started cropping up aimed towards men's mental health to you know get men to speak up and especially in rural areas where you have you know the Australian farmer type character who you know in our rural areas the suicide rate especially for men is exceptionally high mm. and um, that is because of you know, they're taught, you know, as men are in most places to, you know, put up and shut up and, you know, you don't go whinging to your friends and, you know, that is terrible. And, yeah, certainly here it has been the same and, yeah, it's, it's terrible. But, you know, campaigns are starting to come out and raise awareness about men's mental health. But sadly, I think a lot of the issue around mental health and there not being a lot around it and the reason why it's even becoming less now, like, you know, there was sort of a bit of money injected into the, you know, mental health and um, whatnot, and now it's sort of being taken back again, is purely cost-saving. It's purely cost-saving and, you know, it's not seen as important and that's just purely from a government standpoint and the fact that they would rather, you know, look after rich people and business and yeah, you know it's the same go. in we, so many places yeah here we go i know yes this, this same that old nutshell yes, <laughs> yes. and it seems to be uh, to me it seems to be ramping up even more you know we say that, that yeah. old, old nutshell but it seems to be even more so now i don't know it's because uh, yeah the time we're living in us so, but it's just and maybe we're getting more information now out there but Maybe it's always been like that, but we didn't notice it because we didn't have social media and people telling us, oh, yeah. Yeah, potentially. I can't say. I don't... I can't speak with authority on the matter because I don't know. But I think it's sad that, you know, we finally get campaigns out there and tell men to speak up and all the rest of it. And then, what, when they do and they want to, there's nowhere for them to turn because the government takes funding out. It's like, oh, great, that's helpful. And, you know, they're essentially it's left up to volunteers and stuff to pick up the slack it's terrible yeah and let's 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 while we're while we're talking about australia um mm-hmm. let's talk about um quote unquote indigenous aborigine the aborigines what how yeah growing aboriginal up and, people yeah, yeah how, growing up and how have you seen um impact of of the history of you know England, you know they said England um, bank robbers or whatever went to Australia, flew there, all that sort of stuff. The history, that kind of history. What? How do you see the impact of what's happened there in life to do with Aborigines? You know, what's your take on it? Oh, okay. Wow. Well, this is a huge topic, obviously, and is not something that 
I can speak with authority on and it's it's a very complex subject and a very controversial subject but obviously as has happened in many many countries where white settlers have turned up and colonized it turns out terrible for the indigenous people I mean where has that ever worked well and um, you know here it was horrific there were massacres and there was the stolen generation where they removed indigenous children from their parents and you know they took their land they killed people there was a successful genocide of a whole race of people in Tasmania it's just disgusting that the impacts are just still continuing today and it's horrendous and I mean you know, they're incarcerated at horrific rates. There are deaths in custody. Like, I just can't, I could go on and on and on. And it's just, it's absolutely disgraceful. And the impacts on Indigenous people in Australia are just so widespread. I just wouldn't even know where to start and where to end with it. And it's like a whole different topic for a whole nother time unfortunately but I would tell people if they're interested to look into it and to find out more about it because it is terrible and it's ongoing and unfortunately there's not enough out there about it in the media and such and especially not here let alone I imagine in other countries so yeah if you're interested in learning about the plight of the Indigenous Australians definitely look into it because it's yeah it's an ongoing matter and it's certainly not being solved anytime soon. Yeah the reason why I ask is that because I'm putting kind of I've spoken to people from Australia before on the podcast and they've asked them similar questions and they've said because it's mental health they've said that um, because of there's a generational um rates of deaths in trauma of su- trauma generational trauma yeah. and, sui- and yes. suicide rates so like in Ireland apparently in Ireland there's, there's a, in, in certain parts of Ireland there, there's a generational trauma and it's the suicide rates are alarming and you think it's, it's when you hear it because something that happened say 30 years ago or something that happened 50 years ago and people yes. are still having it's impacted them now to the point that they're committing suicide and you think What's been done to change that, in a sense? What's been done to change that? Well, unfortunately, the travesties to Indigenous people are still continuing. Mm. So, you know, white people came here 200 years ago and started committing atrocities against them. But it didn't end. It's still going. Mm. So, you know, it's not going to... It's not just generational trauma, which it is. It's still continuing. So... Yeah, it's a very complex matter and it's, you know, there are people out there who are trying to solve it, but unfortunately it's that white saviour mentality, you know, where they go in and they don't actually consult with Indigenous people and want to find out what's best for them from them. They think they know best and almost treat them like children and it's it's very complex and I, I don't think I'm the right person yeah, at all yeah, no, to want, try and just speak on the matter. Yeah, no, but, um, you know, obviously I care deeply about it, but yeah, I just yeah. I, I don't have the answers. Yeah, I can, yeah, <laughs> no, I can hear I can hear it in your voice and obviously by speaking out it gives listeners out there an opportunity to to maybe do further research like you said and stuff like that because I can feel the pain. when you speak and I can feel the pain in your voice um that when you know when you're thinking about it um yeah so yeah it's um isn't that would be a thing that would be an ongoing 
um, topic and plus like you said there's been cuts as well to men um, yep. across the board which always helps so much yes <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so always helpful for populations. Yes. Yeah. So let's let's talk about the last, um, just briefly about the last year. Again, for listeners out there, we're going to be, we're going to hear this. It's twenty twenty one. We've had yep. this thing called a pandemic, and and it's it's still ongoing, um, as a virus uh-huh. and things like that. What? How's it? impacted you and how you know what what you think about it and how's it impacted australia sure um well thankfully i live on an island so we've been really blessed in that respect our government acted quickly and closed the borders um so you know we've not really been hit hard by covid in relation to other countries and our deaths have been very low compared to other countries. Our cases remain quite low, very conservative. Um, So we're very, very blessed to live on an island, basically with closed borders. Uh, As for me, what's changed for me? Uh, Not a whole lot, I have to say, because being chronically ill and, you know, not leaving the house a whole lot on a day-to-day basis when, you know, shut down, came then you know the whole country went into lockdown and people were told not to leave unless it was absolutely essential and people were freaking out and oh my god you know I don't go out anymore I don't get to socialize I'm like welcome to life as a chronically ill person this is what we do day in day out like nothing's really changed for me I have to say so yeah I it hasn't really affected me I have to say if I'm being completely honest so it may sound really um you know abrupt and like I don't care of course I care about people and you know of course people's mental health has been horrifically affected but I work from home um I work for myself I have a couple of little small businesses I run uh, by Instagram and Etsy um so nothing changed me really at all how bizarre! I know it sounds really no, bizarre, no, no, but really nothing people, changed. A lot of people have said similar things. It hasn't really, you know, um, um, changed. You know, for, for people who are struggling or who have chronic um, illnesses. And, and how do you see the impact of yeah. this on people in Australia? Because if you've got low numbers, <clears throat> do you think that the impact on people is still going to be yeah. with mental health, who maybe um, isolated or? Yeah, well, like I said, we've been really blessed. We did a, you know, full, basically, a full lockdown for a few months here. And once it appeared as though we had the whole situation under control, the country opened up, people who were allowed to get around without masks. Um, Here in Canberra especially, um, we were completely open. We have been since pretty much, I think, June last year, so about 12 months now. It's been business as usual. It hasn't really been different to any other point in my life. And Melbourne, um, on the other hand, has had it tougher. Their um, state premier has been really quite harsh. And as soon as they have a case, just one or two cases crop up, he shuts down like the entire state, um, mandatory masks for everyone. Businesses have to close. Like they're in currently another seven-day lockdown. And, you know, I know... 
um, people in Melbourne and the state of Victoria have suffered a lot mentally, you know, uh, collectively, and it's been really hard for them. And my heart goes out to anyone in Victoria or Melbourne who may be listening to this because I really feel for you guys. But um, it's been the harshest measures in the world, literally. I'm not, you know, saying this as, you know, oh, maybe it has been hard. No, literally the harshest measures in the world. Um, and, you know, that's just if a couple of cases crop up. He's pretty, pretty extreme. Um, so it's been really hard for them. But as far as here and even Sydney, Brisbane, our other biggest cities, um, you know, they have a handful of cases crop up. They'll sometimes do like a three-day you know, lockdown and get the cases under control again and then everything opens up again. We've been really blessed to live in an island nation. Like I said, you know, people have been able to basically work from home, really flexible working arrangements. My mum has been able to stay working from home for the last, um, you know, 14 months or whatever because myself and my brother, who both live at home with my parents, uh, immunocompromised. So as soon as it hit, she was told to work from home, as was my dad. He went back to work after a few months. She's been able to stay home the whole time just because her work was, like, you know, be on the safe side. Everyone's been really good in Australia with working from home arrangements and whatnot. Um, the government um, increased our uh, pensions for pensioners to help with, you know, um, ease the burden of COVID. Our vaccine rollout's been a bit slow. That's probably one thing that hasn't been as great. The US have been amazing with their vaccine rollout. They're very good with logistics. Um, not so much here. <laughs> We're a very you, bureaucratic nation. You, the fall what, over there. But, I was going to um, ask you, what, you're, what to be, whether you want to answer or not, I don't know. But what's yeah, your, go ahead. What's your talk? What's your take on this? What's your, what's your, what was your initial thoughts and have your thoughts changed on the whole and you know people talk about this word conspiracy theory you know i don't i i i'm, huh? just, I'm not interested in that word at all I, I think that's something that was a word that was created by american government now okay there's no smoke without fire that's what i'm saying so yeah what's your take on it if you know if you really want to if you want to come out and say what's your thoughts on covid or the vaccine both Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, given I'm not an immunologist, I can't speak with too much authority. I'd purely be speculating. But, I mean, I just assume... I don't think China's interests lay in also trying to kill off their population because um, they lost a lot of people as well. And I think a lot of people forget that. And I think it's insensitive to think that... I mean, China don't have the greatest civil rights record, by all means. Let's not... You know, forget that. Um, but by the same token, they're not going to kill off a heap of their own population and, you know, lock people inside their homes for the fun of it, you know? Um, so I think calling it the, you know, what was it called? Like the China virus or something? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> the yeah, Americans yeah, are calling it. Yeah. Whatever. I think is really insensitive to the Chinese people. Um, I think that's really awful. Um, but by the same token, I think it's a little suspicious that, you know, this crazy uh, virus can just spring up out of nowhere. I think it is man-made. Um, <clears throat> I don't know for sure. I presume it's man-made. It seems like something crazy, you know, lab-made that perhaps escaped 
accidentally. I don't think it was intentionally thrown out into the population in China, but I think it did accidentally get out somehow. Um, whether it be a leak, because I, I don't know, those laboratories, um, you know, they've got very strict protocols and people have to be bloody hosed down and all this just to get out of work, you know. Um, but, you know, breaches happen in any secure environment, um, whether it be documents or viruses, you know, breaches happen. And so I presume that's what happened. That's my speculation there. Um, and it got out into the Chinese population. And obviously there are, you know, billions of Chinese people um, or over a billion Chinese people and Chinese people travel and obviously where do they like to go? They love to go to Italy on holidays. Next minute, Italy is hit hard, you know, obviously with their huge tourist um, population coming in and, you know, it spreads so quickly from there. I don't think it's some crazy conspiracy, personally, and nor do I think the vaccines are some crazy conspiracy to control our minds or kill us off that way or make us grow tails or anything like that. Um, I am a little nervous about the vaccine, I'm not going to lie. I haven't had it yet despite my being immunocompromised, um, only because I've been feeling so unwell lately and... Everyone was feeling so sick getting their vaccines. I was like, I really just don't want to make myself sick. I'm going to wait until I feel a little bit better yeah. until I get it. And then the AstraZeneca thing came out with the clots and no one under 50 should get it. And I was like, well, thank God I didn't get it because I could have, knowing my luck, I would have gotten that vaccine and I would have been one of the ones with the clots just knowing the luck I've had with my health. Um, but, you know, I am feeling a little bit better at this stage. So, you know, maybe I'll book in next week and I'll get the Pfizer, you know. I'm not... You know, there probably are side effects and there's probably, you know, all sorts of weird things. But I think governments around the world and pharmaceutical companies are just trying their best. And I think that, yeah, there probably will be wacky side effects of deaths. But I think they're just genuinely trying their best to roll out something. It's like a wing and a prayer. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah I, don't, I don't think they're trying to kill us. I think they're genuinely trying to do something. And, yeah, I don't think it's entirely safe, but I don't think that, um, you know, winging it is entirely safe either. Yeah. That being said, in Australia, we have very low cases, hence why I haven't rushed out. If I lived in the US, I would have. But um, hence why I'm just, yeah, being a little bit more conservative in my approach. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'll get it when I get it. Yeah. You know? and what's, been, what's, what's been quite um, thoughtful on, on that is because in terms of the, you, you know, Social, certain social media outlets like Instagram, Facebook and all that YouTube were always kind of cutting people off, banning people, <laughs> stopping them from saying things and putting messages up saying you've spoken, you've spoken about COVID blah 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 yeah and yeah yet, yet um, you know even when you, if you mention something like the, the, the vaccine causing blood clots, anything and yet yes what the interesting thing is that is we obviously know now it does because obviously it's going to yes medicines cause side effects and i know that yes. as well because my mom we know my mom had a was in hospital three weeks ago a knee was she went in and, and a knee was swollen it ballooned up oh and basically, gosh the first thing the first thing before they even said hello to her the first thing their doctor said was um have you taken the vaccine and which one uh, because uh-huh. if they thought yeah. there must have been blood clots in her leg and they gave her two injections in the stomach to uh-huh. to thin the blood so obviously yeah. 
when you have these social media outlets and media saying it doesn't do this, clearly it does because the doctors know it does cause. Yeah, and, we know. Yeah, we know it so does. We know. So anyway, yeah. So it's it's interesting. You and and I'm, I'm kind of with you on on the on the the lab leak and stuff like that. And it's obviously coming out now with yeah. But I just don't. I I always believe that. I'm not saying that you know you've got to tell. The, well, maybe you're supposed to, you're supposed to tell the truth. Obviously, if if it's something that's widespread and something that's affecting people and killing people, you're supposed to you, you've got to come out and tell the truth of what happened. And there's no point in hiding it because you really should. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do you know what I mean? It's, it's not something to hide. Yes. You know, if, if you're going to be a, a, a man or or woman or whatever it is or a human being, just and, a decent human being. Yeah, yes. Yeah, a decent one. And maybe in, my bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and if you're not, if if you don't call, if you if you don't do that, that means you'll be seen as a non, as a de- a non decent human being. Because either which way. Well, did you watch that show on Chernobyl? Yeah. Now, did those people come forward and go, "My bad, I stuffed up," or did they have to have a whole hearing around it and people come forward and go, "Call them out on it"? It's, I just think it's crazy. They weren't going to come forward and go, my bad, you know, every, you know, I was responsible for the whole thing. No. And I think that's really sad that, like, you know, people will not often admit that they're wrong and that they're responsible for things. I mean, people like you and I obviously will say my bad, even if it means that, you know, we have to take the blame for things I've not been responsible for killing someone before that I'm aware of. But I would like to think that if I were... I would do the same as I always do and say, my bad. Um, But evidently there are a lot of people out there, and especially when governments are involved, that will never do that. They will never do that unless they're forced to. Yeah, because... And there are just... And even then, even then when all the evidence is, you know, thrown in their faces, blah, blah, they still won't. So, I mean, it is what it is. And I think that sometimes you'll just bang your head against a wall if you even try to think that that will happen so yeah. let's talk about your let's talk about you i mean we'll talk about you anyway let's talk I mean, about me let's talk about <laughs> you and let's talk about you know you, you if anyone's you, interested yeah, yeah. They'll, they'll be interested because um i'm interested in, and and you know the, the listeners out there you know they want to and you know, know what's interesting yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's just it's just your journey you know because yes there may be somebody else that may be going through what you you're going through you know I had a lady on there well I hope not I certainly hope not but (laughs) if anyone out there is I'm here to talk let's do it let's go for it and let's talk about you and and your Mm -hmm. kind of you know your your ailments and your you know the things that you're going through as a child was yeah so I um it's been a while since I felt well I um I started feeling sick around the time I was 13. I um, I unfortunately hit puberty young. I was about nine, and so I got a face full of acne. Lucky me. Right. And so after a couple of years, I got jack of that. I wasn't having a fun time. And so my doctor put me on acne meds, and I was feeling pretty good about myself because my acne got cleared up a bit. But sadly, I was getting severe tummy cramps and nausea just like all the time and no one was really believing me when I was like because I was vague I was about 13 and I was just all the time I feel sick 
when I feel well, my tummy hurts. I don't really have any other symptoms apart from that. Mm. And I mean, as a 13-year-old when you're at school, and I hated school, I, I hated school. Um, just being like, I don't want to go to school today, I don't feel well. What's wrong? I, don't, I just I feel sick. My tummy hurts. It's like, come on, you know? And so, you know, my parents tried. I have to say, they did try. They took me to my GP. I had ultrasounds, never showed anything. I did one of those helicobacter pylori breath tests, what? which is what? like a standard what? go-to. What's that word? Say that word again. Helicobacter pylori. Wow. It's, this was, here's one for you. Um, it's the bacteria that causes stomach ulcers. It was actually um, found by an Australian um, gastroenterologist. So basically back in the day, if you had a stomach ulcer, you were stuffed, like bad luck, maybe some surgery, but there was not much they could do for you until the 80s when this doctor, Professor Brody's name is, um, figured out that there was a bacteria called Helicobacter pylori that was causing these ulcers and that they could treat it with a couple of antibiotics. And that's it, you're cured. <laughs> no more stomach ulcers. Um, yeah, so there you go, something from Australia. Wow. We've come full circle. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's a standard thing that if you've got, you know, stomach upset, um, a lot of nausea or any kind of gastrointestinal issues, a GP will usually send you for that breath test. Anyone who's listening who's had tummy problems will know exactly what I'm talking about. But yeah, so I went and had that done. Why would a 13-year-old have stomach ulcers? Like, come on, it's very highly unlikely. And sure enough, I didn't. So all these tests are coming back negative. Um, I went to see a gastroenterologist and... He did a endoscopy, a gastroscopy, um, to look into my stomach and esophagus. For people who don't know what that is, they put you under light sedation <clears throat> and pass a camera down your esophagus into your stomach, have a look around, take some biopsies. He didn't take any biopsies, this particular doctor I later found out many years later. Um, but he did have a look around and said I had reflux and put me on reflux meds and sent me on my merry way. Also, in hindsight, it does seem suspicious that a 13-year-old would be suffering reflux. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Very strange. Yeah. But, um, you know, we weren't to know. We don't know what's going on. So I would take reflux meds and continue on suffering throughout my high school years and, you know, rocking up at emergency every now and then, you know, in the middle of the night in just horrific pain, you know, just doubled over begging for relief and I also had a horrific needle phobia FYI and I'm talking like a full-on phobia like not just oh I don't like needles or I'm a bit scared of them if someone would say the word needle to me I would break out in a cold sweat and start having anxiety like I was terrified of them I missed most of my childhood vaccines because I was so scared of them no one could get me to have them yeah. yeah it was bad so if I went to hospital and they tried to put a cannula in me it often involved them like chasing me around you know, having to hold me down or they'd have to give me Valium to get a blood test or whatever. Like, it was bad. So that was a lot lot of trauma for me. Like, it was really traumatising. Um, it was, yeah, it was not a fun time. Yeah. 
and I was asking, sorry to cut you, but at that time, how many meds were you yes. on? Yes. Because you, you, you spoke about being 13 and being put on meds, and how many things were you on at that yeah. time? Yeah. Well, around the same time, I started developing anxiety and stuff like that, because like I said, I didn't like school, I was having a rough time, so I had been put on an anti-anxiety, antidepressant med as well. I actually went and saw a psychiatrist who was awful to me. I will never forget his name. I won't say his name, but I'll never forget him. Um, I said I felt like people were always judging me and I didn't feel comfortable around people. And I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, why would people care about you? Why would they be thinking about you? They don't care about you. Wow. And I just thought, who says that to a teenage girl? Yeah, gosh. <laughs> like, I get the point, probably the sentiment he was trying to convey, but not the thing to say. Yeah. Like, wow, mate, yeah. wow. Yeah. yeah, so, um, yeah, he put me on a med which has since been discontinued because it caused homicidal tendencies. So he was a great psychiatrist. <laughs> Still practising today, FYI. But anyway, um... But his books are closed, so if I wanted to get into him, I couldn't. But, yeah, just a little tidbit there for you. <laughs> anyway, so, um, and because I'd had these tests and nothing had ever shown up, I was basically, like, no one believed what was going on. I had family members who were calling me a drama queen, um, basically a hypochondriac. It was really awful. Like, I just felt so awful like I just was like no one believes me like is this in my head I was so sick I'd be sleeping in class at school because I was so sick um my teachers certainly didn't believe me I'd be in the sick bay half the time um because I could barely function um I got moved into a thing called youth focus which was for like the you know sort of troubled youth of the school um to paint toilets and do gardening and all this so basically they were lost causes they were, were no longer in classes and stuff and it was because i was doing well academically in tests and stuff but wasn't awake in class i was sleeping and so they thought i was cheating and so they they sent me to youth focus and the only other people in youth focus were basically like the you know stoner guys and stuff and dudes who used to smoke behind the gym and stuff like there were no girls in it and so i was like for god's sake like this is just ridiculous like no one believes me like i'm just completely out on my own here um so this is like the modern day story of which we, we, I've heard a few times of the boy that cried wolf, in a sense. Yeah. No one believed. But I was, there was a wolf. Yeah. <laughs> there was a damn wolf. Like, I was suffering. Um, and thankfully, my cousin, who I grew up with, I mentioned her earlier on, like, we used to play all the time as kids. She was in my year at school as well, and she believed me. She could see me suffering all the time, and she knew, and she... She was such a massive support for me and someone I went on all the time. I don't think I would have got through school without her. It was so traumatic, seriously. Like, I was just suffering all the time. And I had one beautiful teacher who recognised what was going on and um, pulled me out of that horrific program and said, like, what the hell is this girl doing in there? Like, she's not, like, some dysfunctional, you know, drug-affected teen. She's not well and put me back into normal classes and stuff. Like, it was just horrendous. Anyway, so I went through all the my teen years suffering with illness and essentially not being fully believed that 
the severity of my illness. Some people didn't believe I had illness at all. And, you know, medical trauma of being jabbed with needles and cannulas and going to emergency departments and all the rest of it. Yeah. Did you have have anxiety? Did you... Were you always... Did it come to a point where you were anxious... You were getting anxiety before you even going to school because you didn't really want to go because of... Oh, all the time. All the time. I hated school. I, it was... The anxiety around going to school was immense. Mm. I hated it so much. And, like, the embarrassment of, you know, being sick at school and stuff and being teased at school and, like, it was just horrendous. I despised school so much. Like, I I don't have any real happy memories of school. Like, it was just awful. Like I said, if my cousin didn't go to school with me and was in the same year as me, I'd, I'd... I don't think I would have gone at all, ever. So really, so really you had... <laughs> the, ang- the anxiety was coming from every angle then at that time. As, particularly as yeah. A, as, a, yep. as, a, as a girl, as a young girl, um, and just imagine, I'm just picturing that, you're, you're, you know, you're getting it from all angles, from, you know, people calling your names, people not believing you, you're not, you're, you're anxiety going to school, the needles, the thoughts of, you know, what is... And also the question mark of what is wrong with me? Because I, I, I'm sure at yeah. that point, you just still didn't know what was wrong with you. No, not at all. Not a, the faintest clue. And it wasn't until... So I was 13 when I can remember the symptoms really starting. It wasn't until I was 21 that I got a diagnosis. Wow. So it was around my 21st birthday... I was um, prescribed diet pills from my GP I was seeing at the time. And I remember seeing on the diet pills not to take them if you had Crohn's disease. And I was like, I don't know what Crohn's disease is, but I don't have it, so I'm going to take them. Because, you know, I wanted to lose a couple of kgs. So, you know, I didn't want to diet and exercise because I don't have the energy for that, being, you know, feeling awful all the time. So I want to take some diet pills. And basically, as soon as I started taking the diet pills, I was in horrific pain. Like, the pain just amped up, like, tenfold. And um, the nausea, oh, my God, I was so debilitating. So I told my GP that I was feeling like this, and I started passing blood with basically every bowel movement, blood. And I told her this. And she was like, it's normal. Like, heaps of people have this problem. Like, don't worry about it. And I was like, Really? Oh, oh, okay then. Okay, carry on then. Keep going, whatever. That's life, radio. So off I go. I go to the chemist then and buy a heap of anti-spasm medication, like to stop the cramping in my gut. And over-the-counter migraine medicine that was paracetamol and an anti-nausea med. Um, to try and help with the nausea because she wouldn't give me anything herself. So prescription, sorry, that's what I was dealing I was living on it. Like, I was just living on these over-the-counter meds to try and function. I'm starting to lose count and now. I'm starting to lose count about how many meds you're taking. And there's two at this point, but right. they're just a combined, like, this is my little home concoction that I've come up with to try and so deal you, with the cramping and nausea. So you stopped taking the other ones and, and then moved on to these ones then? Yeah, I stopped taking the diet pill because I figured that it was probably making me sick. Yeah. Yeah, so um, 
it comes to December. I started taking the pills around July. Around December, um, she goes on leave and says, if you need anything while I'm away, come and see this doctor. So I was like, righto. One day I'm having an exceptionally painful day, so I book and see this doctor that she told me to see in her place. And he's like, I think you have an appendicitis. You need to go to the ED. And so he writes me a letter to accompany me to the ED with a suspected appendicitis. I get there and they too think that I have an appendicitis given the extreme pain I'm in and the symptoms I'm experiencing. Like I said, severe nausea, severe cramping and the passing of blood. And so they send me straight into the operating theatre to have my appendix out. And when I wake up, they tell me that... Okay, so I didn't have an appendicitis, but when they opened me up, my small bowel was so inflamed and angry looking, they suspect that I have inflammatory bowel disease. And I'm like, what the hell is inflammatory bowel disease? And they're like, okay, so it's chronic, it's lifelong, it's an autoimmune disease. And it's either, it's likely to be um, Crohn's disease. And I was like, Crohn's disease, I've heard of this. Where have I heard this? And then it clicked. I was like, those damn diet pills. (laughs) I've heard of this. And I was like, oh, my God, it obviously amped up things. I was not meant to take those if I had this. And I just fell to bits initially because I was like, this is chronic lifelong. Like, if I have this, I'm never going to not have it. Like, there's no getting rid of this. So I had to wait six weeks to heal up from the unnecessary surgery I just had. Um, what were your thoughts? To have a colonoscopy to confirm. What were your thoughts at the Sorry? time? Sorry? What were your thoughts at the time? You know, at the time of hearing this and you, know, you said you felt a bit... I was just, I was just shocked and upset and I was like, maybe there's a chance I don't have it. Maybe it's something else. Like, maybe, just maybe, it's something that can be fixed. Mm. And so I just held out hope that maybe, maybe. But I was also relieved that it was something wrong because I was like, this would explain a lot. Yeah, yeah. And then over Christmas, because it was December, like I said, over Christmas at such, I was so sick and I was in and out of hospital and all the rest of it. It was hell waiting six weeks to get a colonoscopy. I finally got the colonoscopy and the biopsies confirmed and the colonoscopy confirmed Crohn's disease. And I did the thing you should never do when you get diagnosed with chronic illness, and that is Google. (laughs) So I was like, commence the funeral arrangements. I'm going to die. Like, (laughs) there is no future for me. Um, I was devastated. Like, I just couldn't believe that I had this chronic lifelong condition. I had convinced myself, like, they're going to have to remove my entire bowel now. I'm going to have a stoma. Like, it's, I'm 21. My life is over. Like, there's no normalcy for me ever again. Worst case scenario, you know, for everything. Like, it's all ruined. Um, They offered me counseling, um, as they do for everyone who's just been diagnosed with chronic illnesses and stuff, which I refused because I was like, no, no, I'll pull it together. I've got a really supportive family. I have a boyfriend. I'd had a boyfriend I'd been with at that stage for about four years. And I was like, you know, he'll see me through it. They'll all see me through it. And so I was like, I got this, I can do this. And I was also feeling really validated though that all the sickness, all the suffering I'd had for all these years was real. And there was that, that validation was so good. Yeah, yeah. So good. Yeah. yeah. And so shove I felt it, really good it, about teachers. that. Shove it, teachers, and shove it. 
um, children. Yeah, I, I, yes, yeah, hundred really percent. I was like, yes. <laughs> so I felt really, really good about that. I felt freaking stoked about that. Um, but that was a really rough year. That was a really rough year mm. um, for basically the whole of 2010. Um, they were trying to get my meds right and trying to get me into remission because you have with autoimmune diseases, it's about you know getting your immune system sorted. Um, to try and get you into some type of normalcy and remission, however that looks. Um, for me, they have to suppress the immune system enough that my immune system stops attacking my small bowel. Now, Crohn's disease can affect you anywhere from your lips all the way through to the anus. So that's your whole gastrointestinal system. Yeah. Hence why I was getting reflux in my earlier years. Um, they should have taken biopsies when they did that. Um, endoscopy back when I was 13 as it turns out on my medical record he never did take a biopsy I could have been diagnosed so much younger and saved myself so much suffering but uh, the damage that was done from years of not being diagnosed you know uh, negligence anyway yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> come June of that year so I was diagnosed at the very start of January 2011 no 2010 2010 sorry come June, they put me on a really strong biological drug um, akin to chemotherapy called infliximab um, to suppress my immune system because none of the conventional tablets and stuff were working. But sadly, it was a little too late. Um, my body had just taken such a hit, so much damage had been done and I'd been on so many steroids and all the rest of it that my bowel perforated and I went into septic shock. I woke up one morning and was in so much pain and I literally told my family, I feel like I'm dying. And you know, everyone can be a little melodramatic sometimes and they're like, I feel like I'm dying, like with the flu or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so like, they were like, okay, like, you know, maybe we should get you to the doctor or whatever. I'm like, no, like, I feel like I'm actually dying. Um, you know, I couldn't stand up straight. I was vomiting incessantly. The pain was like nothing I'd ever experienced before. And so I got to the hospital and sure enough, I was going septic. And they said if I had have waited a couple more hours, I would have died. And so I spent the next few weeks in hospital on total bowel rest. But thankfully, my doctor was amazing and he saved my bowel. Usually they'll go in and just remove your bowel if that happens to you. But they managed with like IV antibiotics, five different types, a heap of steroids, and got my inflammation levels down. And I spent some time in ICU, and you know, I survived it. And I survived with my bowel intact. And I was very, very lucky to have a very, very good doctor. Yeah. But the mental toll that took on me was so immense, so immense. The trauma, the trauma from that time was just horrific. Um, what was going, the what pain was, what that I felt. You're talking, about, you're talking about the trauma. If you let the listeners know, what, what kind of thoughts were going through your head? and um, you know. Well, at that time, I'd resigned myself to the fact that I'm probably going to die. So at the time, I accepted that and I was okay with that. But later on, the recovery. It was the recovery that was traumatic. The isolation of being in hospital for that long Anyone who's spent a long period of time in hospital will know what I'm talking about. Yeah, people will come and visit you, but it's so lonely. I had my own room and everything, which was lovely, but it's so lonely and I couldn't eat. 
I couldn't eat for like three weeks. That messes with your head. We're not not meant to eat. I was starving. My stomach felt like it was eating itself, but I had to rest my bowel. So I was on, um, I had a pick line in my arm, which is like a drip that goes straight into your heart, basically, for lack of a better term to explain it. And that would feed me nutrition through that drip. And um, so I wouldn't, you know, literally starve to death, but my, my stomach and whatnot was getting no food. And so I felt so starving and all I could think about was eating and I couldn't drink so my mouth was constantly dry I could chew on ice cubes but you know the thirst was so immense and the pain was so horrific I was on PCA which is you know patient controlled analgesic a little button to hit myself with morphine every five minutes and the pain was horrific I mean you can imagine what it'd be like to like be stabbed in the guts essentially my 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 guts tore themselves to bits that's what they did and it was just horrific pain like when people tell me they've suffered 10 out of 10 pain and they're talking about it like I'm in 10 out of 10 pain if they're saying that to me I'm like if you can talk you're not in 10 out of 10 because 10 out of 10 you can't speak anymore you're passed out I've been there like when I was in 10 out of 10 I couldn't talk anymore I'd the passed out. So I always say I save my 10 out of 10 when you're on, you're unconscious. Yeah. Yeah, 9 out of 10, you're starting to black out. Like, when once you've been there, once you've been in 10 out of 10 pain, you yeah. know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's you, no talk. I was going to ask you about this. You, when you said, you said, I did, because what I'm trying to gather is that there's obviously a lot of strength in you. There has to be because you're still you're still alive. So yeah, I'm but, still here. <laughs> but the thing is, you accept. You, there's a point when you said, "I accept to die." And so it's almost like what what strength was there that brought you that that took you out of that acceptance to know that that wasn't me. That was the doctors and nurses around me hmm. who worked on me and knew what was happening and knew what to do and saved me I I didn't mind like I was just like I'd been so sick for so long and I was getting progressively worse so quickly over six months that I wasn't that shocked that this was happening and I was just like it's fine honestly like I'm in that much pain at this point if I die now like it's fine like it's okay I was literally that's how I was but the recovery was so tough on me that I thought several times about ending it. Like, how can I kill myself? In this hospital room, with nothing available to me, how can I end it? Because it was so hard. It was so hard. It was lonely. It was painful. And it just felt like it was never ending. It, and it's horrible to think back on, but it, that was that of one of the more, most traumatic times of my life. I'm smiling because that was a bit of an irony because I'm, I'm thinking about that way. Um, you, you're in a hospital where a place where people die or there's drugs that can actually kill you in a sense um, that you were looking around thinking um, what, what, how can I how can I end it is, is that you can see the irony in that of um, yeah well there was but I had nothing there like there was no, I was like can I use the drip that I'm hooked up to to smash my own head in like that's literally what I thought at one point like can I use that because there was nothing there that I could actually use I couldn't jump out the window the windows don't open like it was literally like nothing I could do yeah 
but it was you, crazy. But you like, said you said it, you said it was a doctor's. Now, I'm gonna I'm gonna counteract that by saying it, there must have been something in you that brought you back. Yes, it might be doctors operating you, and and you then come out of it afterwards. But there must be something that stopped you from doing. Yeah, that is there's nothing there. Okay, that probably stopped you. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But. <laughs> what, I don't know. Honestly, I don't what feel it. I don't feel you... that there was anything. Mm. I just, I was along for the ride. I felt so helpless. Mm. I felt like I had no control. And that's why I think that whole time in my life was so traumatic is because I had no control. Mm. Yeah. And the only thing I can honestly say I didn't do was, yeah, potentially, like I said, smash my head into something to try and end it. Because, yeah, there were times when I was like, I can't keep doing this. But I did keep doing it. I finally got out of hospital after, like, three long weeks. Like I said, it felt like forever. It felt like a year. But I made it out. And, you know, I started to get better thanks to Infliximab or Remicade, as it's also known. This strong biological medicine. I've been on that now for 11 years. And it saved my life and I started to feel better. I ran into remission and, you know, I, I I masked a lot, I have to say, which upsets me thinking back on it. Mm. Um, for my partner, one of the biggest things I thought when I got diagnosed is, oh, my God, is he going to leave me now because I'm sick? Mm. Um, so I masked a lot around him and I, I regret that um, massively. Um but I did, I did actually start to get better myself yeah. um, and I didn't have to mask as much. And I was able to, um, at the start of 2011, so a whole 12 months of in and out of hospital and feeling like death quite literally, um, go back to work as an executive assistant and you know start to get some semblance of a life back and I thought you know that I would never be able to do that but I did and I thought that life was finally getting back to normal again and I was like yes here we are finally but but you know life has a way of laughing at us um I started to get sicker around 2012 2013 You know, my old friend Nausea was knocking on my door 24-7 and my boss I was working for was horrible to me and had no semblance of empathy in his body whatsoever. And so whenever I, you know, had a Crohn's flare, like needed, you know, a day or two off or whatever, he just did not get it at all and (laughs) he was a delight to work for. And I was getting this unexplained nausea all the time and, you know just feeling absolutely horrible and no tests I was getting were showing anything up and all my colonoscopies were normal my Crohn's was definitely in remission so why was I feeling so nauseous and so awful and my partner at the time was seemingly just not giving a crap about it and making me feel like just such an inferior person for being sick He told me that, you know, I'd probably never be able to have children. I'd be a terrible mother if I did have children because I'm sick. He just always made me feel like less of a person from the day I met him. So basically you're going through the same thing 
as an adult as you would have been going through as a child as a child yeah yeah I I just found someone to you know reiterate all those points to me in my adult life you know because that's what I knew so we did that (laughs) for many years Um, but yeah it all just got too much for me and in 2013 early 2013 I just had a complete mental breakdown just everything caught up with me and I had a complete breakdown I just couldn't do it anymore the nausea constant nausea I just couldn't live with it I'm like I've been here before and then not being able to figure out what's causing it I've been here before my partner I'd moved in with him a year about six months earlier I'd been with him for about seven years and um, he was so unsupportive he was mentally and emotionally abusive to no end and like I said just making me feel like less of a person over my illness which is something I just could not control and you know just I couldn't take it and the fact that you know I had this illness that I couldn't control and I never got the counselling I was supposed to get for it anyone listening if you have been diagnosed with an illness get counselling you need it in spite of what you think and how strong you are, you need to get counselling, please. Please, if that's all you do, do not make the mistake I made. So, yeah, I just fell in a heap, in a complete heap. I just wanted to end it all. I wanted to end it all, so I got put in a facility for three weeks and um, I got diagnosed with somatization disorder and also known as somatic symptom disorder now. Right. Have you heard of it? No, what is, what is that? So basically what happens is you make yourself sick. It's like a self-fulfilling yeah, prophecy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, <laughs> like as if I needed this because yeah, I, yeah, I wasn't no. sick enough. Yeah, no, I've heard so I'm going to go ahead and make myself feel sick. Yeah. So basically, you know, you just, your stress, like, okay, the best way I can explain it for people to understand is if you've ever been so stressed about, you know, an exam or something that you've made yourself feel sick, tummy cramps, nausea, you're really worried that I'm sick to the guts feeling, you know, that's a type of somatic symptom disorder. But when you've been diagnosed with it as a psychiatric illness, it means that You've got it 24-7, all the time. You can't get rid of it. There's no event coming up. There's no situation going on that, you know, explains it. It's not like, you know, you have a date tomorrow and you're getting nervous for it so you feel like, you know, a bit sick or that you've given yourself a tension headache from stress. No, no, this is 24-7. And it was basically that, you know, I was under so much pressure from all angles at work, from my partner and from not dealing with the fact that I had a chronic illness and that I, you know, was so terrified of it and so upset about it and all the rest of it that I was so messed up and anxious that I was making myself sicker. So do not recommend that to anyone at all. Do not do that. Um, like I said, seek help, get counselling. If you have been diagnosed with any serious illness, you need to get counselling. I've had so many people reach out to me on Instagram and say, you know, I've just been diagnosed with XYZ. 
what do you suggest I do? And I'm like, oh my God, okay, first step, get counselling. And they go, no, 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 I don't need counselling. I've got great friends, great family. What else do I need to do? No, no, I don't think you want to. Like people do not listen. I can't tell you how often this happens. And I'm like, here we go. They'll have fun in a couple of years. It it happens to everyone. Everyone I know has a breakdown after they've been diagnosed with an illness. It's just, it's part of of the journey, if you will. But you want to know that when that breakdown comes, that you have a great therapist, that you potentially have a psych on board that's going to give you the meds you need if that's the path you need, if that's a journey, that you have the supports you need, that you have mindfulness on board, that you have, you know, all the things you need to help you through because you don't want to end up in a psych facility like I did, you know. That's a bit extreme. You don't want to end up there if you don't have to. Mind you, It helped me immensely. Three weeks of intensive therapy helped me immensely. How did that impact your family, your family life? Away from your partner? um, Away from my partner, sorry. He barely visited me while I was in there. Um, I was alone a lot of the time. I had some beautiful friends who came and visited me. Um, It was a big strain on my family, and that was due to personal reasons between my partner and them and whatnot, things that were going on separate to my illness and my breakdown um but I came out of there like a new woman I had new perspective on everything I had the tools I needed to battle depression and anxiety um you know I had my diagnosis of like I said depression anxiety my somatic symptom disorder or somatization disorder as it was then known and medical PTSD my psychiatrist who saw me, he's, I was like, I don't trust doctors. I'm like, I, I don't, I don't, I don't like doctors and all this, you know. I was very wary of him. And he was like, I don't blame you. <laughs> when I told him my story, he was like, I do not blame you. I'm like, you know, doctors don't know anything. Yeah. It's like one in a million that they know anything. He's like, yeah, you're probably right. And he got me totally that, you know, I was very skeptical of doctors and all the rest of it. And, you know, I talked about the things I'd been through and whatnot. And so, yeah, medical PTSD, what a surprise. I bet you could all see that one coming. You know, the trauma that I'd been through since, you know, being a kid and in and out of the medical system and the negligence of the doctors I'd come across and just the, you know, fear that I'd been around with around medical procedures and things that had happened to me, like... It was almost a foregone conclusion that I'd end up there. So I also thankfully ended my relationship shortly thereafter because I realised that it was toxic yeah. and that he was not supportive and that, you know, I deserved someone who was going to, you know, make me feel like a worthwhile human being and not make me feel guilty for having illness that was out of my control and, you know, make me feel like less of a person. So... That was that was helpful to leave that behind, um, but I did get a lot sicker again, and I didn't know why. And so I moved back in with my parents as I was deteriorating away, and had no idea. Like I said, went all back to my gastro's and got colonoscopies and stuff as standard when you have chronic illness like Crohn's disease to look into things and I started getting paranoid you know is this somatic symptom disorder I'm happy I feel relaxed I feel like everything's in order now you know is this in my head you know you start to doubt yourself and they doubted me as well my gastro you know there's nothing wrong with her and we're back here again you know back to 
where I used to be. You know, this isn't real. There's nothing wrong with her. Nothing showing up on scans, all the rest of it. I have a beautiful GP at this point who advocates for me and really feels like, no, no, there's something wrong. I'd eat and my belly would blow up like a balloon. So there was some sort of obstruction going on. And I was so ill and in so much pain. And so he organised for me to have a pill cam endoscopy, which means that you swallow a camera and it goes all the way through your body. And before they put that through you, they like to do a test one to make sure it won't get stuck anywhere. And sure enough, the test one got got stuck. stuck. It got stuck, yes. It got stuck. And so they do an x-ray then to see where it got stuck. And sure enough, I had a big plum-sized tumour in my small bowel. And so I suffered for about eight months with my gastroenterologist, not the one who saved my life, but a new one who just would not believe me and telling me that there was nothing wrong with me for many months while I suffered, telling me that, you know, get over it, there's nothing going on. And it was like that validation again. Okay, so I don't want this tumour, but I knew it. I knew it! You know, but this is a sick validation that anyone with chronic illness or anyone who's ever been told it's in your head knows. (laughs) Well, you're like, I don't want this, but yes! (laughs) <laughs> so sure enough, it, it was benign. It was actually this thing. So I had to have a big, big cut open. I couldn't have it laparoscopy, laparoscopy done um, because it was so big. It had to, have to be cut open to have this thing moved out of me. Um, it was a pulse granuloma, which means a pulse like a legume right. that I'd eaten right. um, to appease my partner, mind you, and his family because I didn't. I couldn't be rude and refuse the food that I was being offered. I was told, even though this food did not agree with me, had gotten stuck in my small bowel and calcified and calcified and calcified into a big tumour. Yes. How ridiculous. Of all stupid things to happen. The human body is is absolutely amazing. I mean, yes, you you go through this... It's, oh gosh totally bizarre anyway so when they got that out and realised what it was after they biopsied and everything they're like right that is not supposed to happen so at least you know my doctors were happy enough to get some papers out of me you know write some interesting <laughs> tidbits up about me yeah, yeah. I on the other hand was not so pleased about it but you know at least it was out of me it was a bit of a rough recovery though having a bowel resection and stuff it's you know, rough surgery. But, you know, I got through it and I was happy that, you know, I had that validation again that it wasn't in my head. I wasn't crazy this time, you know, I wasn't having a meltdown. Everything was, um, you know, it was all good. And I was able to, you know, do a bit of travel then and all the rest of it because I was feeling better. So I, yeah, went to Qatar. Hey. (laughs) And um, later that year, went to the US with my family. But while I was in the US, I was feeling really, really unwell. I started getting really bad nausea and pain, pelvic pain and stuff. And I was like, dude, when we get back, I need to see my gastro because I'm scared there's something wrong with my Crohn's or something. I was living on painkillers the whole time I was overseas. So when I got back, looking to see the gastro, the one that never believes me, because once again in Canberra, there aren't any options. You see the doctor that's available, that's it. Yeah. And she tells me that nothing's wrong. They do a colonoscopy, nothing's wrong, you're all right. 
no worries, carry on. And I'm like, no, I can't carry on. Like, this was October, come January, I'm suffering. Like, I'm in so much pain, I'm so unwell. And um, it took me till July. So months and months and months of just living on painkillers for a friend of mine to say, have you thought about seeing a gynecologist? This could be gynecological, like pelvic pain. And I was like, I don't know. Like, that doesn't seem right. I've never had any issues before, but why not to give it a whirl? I've got nothing to lose. So I went and saw a gynecologist. Two weeks later, I was in having uh, another laparoscopy and was diagnosed with endometriosis. So I was like, great, add that to the list. Why not? Okay. Why not? So he removed a heap of endometriosis, put me on some hormones and was like, you know, the hormones will manage your endo. And we've removed it now, so you should feel a lot better. And for a few weeks I did. I did. And then I started getting horrific migraines. Oh, my God. Like, come on. I I never suffered migraines. Never. And I was like, what now? Like, the hormones are giving me migraines. Like, as soon as I start on these freaking hormones for the endometriosis, I start getting these migraines. So, my GP sends me for an MRI before starting me on migraine meds, as a matter of course. Yeah. I go and get the MRI, and they find a brain tumor. And I'm like, are you actually having a laugh? He calls me on a Friday evening, like early Friday evening, and says to me, okay, so you have a brain tumor. The scan showed something up. And I just honestly can't remember feeling almost numb. Like, this is just too stupid to even comprehend. I don't know if that makes sense. Like, I was like, seriously. Like, for real. He's like, it's a benign tumour. However, it's growing into your optic nerve and your carotid artery. This is dangerous. dangerous. I recommend we get you into a neurosurgeon ASAP. It's on my right. So I go and see a neurosurgeon. I'm going to stop you there. I'm sorry, I was going to stop you because you're speaking like this... um, because the, the way I'm hearing you speak is is very um, how you are now, how you how you see your past now and things like that. Were you? Oh no! Were you like oh this? no! Were this you, is how I was at the time. I, was, like I didn't cry. Were you like this at the time? Were you? Yeah. Were, when you said, "Oh no, don't tell me this is happening again," or "This is oh no, this is." No, I was literally like, "This is ridiculous." Like at the time when he told me this, and I had to book into a neurosurgeon. I just called them up and told them what had happened and what type of tumor it was, and it was all very matter of fact. And do you think? I was just like, you, oh well, another thing. Okay, so do you think then the reason now it's come to this another thing? Do you think that this is your your thoughts on this, your personality, your thoughts on this was a result of on um, I've been through so much. What another thing? Yeah. yeah. At this point, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so I call them up. I make an appointment. I go up to Sydney because the neurosurgeon's in Sydney. 
I go see him and he's like, yeah, it's growing into your carotid artery and optic nerve. We need to operate in a couple of weeks. Like, this can't wait. It's at this point. I'm up there by myself, mind you, seeing him because, like, I usually would take, you know, a family member or something. But, you know, I had to get in a sort of quick appointment and no one could come with me. So I fly back down to Canberra. And I remember flying back and I teared up a bit on the plane because then it sort of started to hit home a bit. And then I started to get emotional. And then the, the heaviness of the situation started to hit home a bit. I'm going to have brain surgery. And I had a couple of weeks to sort of process this from start to finish. So then I started telling people, you know, my family, extended family and friends and stuff, what was happening. But my surgeon assured me, you know, after everything I've been through already, this will be like a walk in the park. So that gave me a lot of solace and, yeah. you know, made me feel pretty confident I got this, you know. So I took my mum and we went up to Sydney and it was going to be, you know, about a week start to finish that I'd be up there and then we'd drive back. I couldn't fly due to the pressure, apparently in my head and whatnot, so we'd have to drive home. So I went in and had my brain surgery and I was very nervous because I don't know, like brain surgery just seems so much scarier than any kind of surgery to me. Like it's like people fiddling around your brain it's just not right. (laughs) And when I was going under, I also said to him, like, please make sure you don't shave too much hair. Like, that's one of the things that really worried me as well. It's like, just be conservative. Like, let's not get carried away with the head shaving, okay? Like, this is already bad enough. And him and the Anis just were laughing. (laughs) Saying, okay, you know, don't worry. (laughs) Like, this is bad enough. We don't need to get carried away with the shave. Anyway, so I woke up from the surgery and... And you were bold. The pain was horrific. Yeah. So first things first, I thought, a walk in the park compared to my other surgeries? Oh, no. No, no, no. This is so much worse. So much worse. And I just remember asking the nurses in ICU, more morphine, more morphine. Hit me up. Come on, keep coming with the morphine. So they did. They were hitting me up with more morphine. And then... My neurosurgeon comes and says, oh, no, no morphine. You can't have morphine. It'll affect you neurologically. And we need to know where you're at neurologically to know how it may or may not have affected you, the surgery. So we need you to come off all painkillers. I'm allergic to non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, so I can't take Aspro, um, ibuprofen, anything like that. So it was paracetamol for me and paracetamol only. So basically nothing. Let's say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so at the same the time, the pain was the worst pain of my life. So at the same time, were I you getting pains in your stomach as well as your head? Was it was it both? No, I didn't. Just... I still had my constant, usual endometriosis pain yeah. that I would always get, and my Crohn's pain, and I couldn't take my usual painkillers that I would take because it would affect me neurologically. And I wasn't allowed to take anything for the head pain and the nausea was horrendous and I would vomit constantly and whenever I vomited, the head pain felt like my head was going to explode. And I now had a new, this is the worst pain compared to my bowel perforation because at least when I had my bowel perforation, I passed out, sort of went into a semi-conscious state, whereas this... This was just relentless and I could barely rest and all I could do was lay in a dark room 
with my eyes closed and a cold washcloth on my head and just cry. And my mum would sit there with me in the corner knitting, as she does. And she couldn't talk to me because if she spoke, it was too loud. And there I laid for days on end until we could make the journey home to Canberra, three hours. And the whole way home, I filled up sick bag after sick bag after sick bag, vomiting. And every bump in the road felt like someone was jackhammering into my brain. And that lasted, I want to say, about two months. That pain and the vomiting and the light sensitivity, like the worst migraine of your life times a thousand. And he told me it'd be a walk in the park. Now, I love my neurosurgeon, bless his heart. He's a lovely man. But what the hell was he thinking? (laughs) And the worst part about it is they didn't get all the brain tumour. They couldn't get it all because of the location. It was so, so close to my carotid artery and... Whatnot. They, they got as much of it as they could and so they said, you know, we did our best but now we just have to monitor you yearly and watch for growth. And the thought of me having to redo that surgery ever is just like the worst yeah. imaginable and my recovery from my brain surgery is now the toughest thing I've ever been through and I wanted to kill myself so many times I can't even tell you. And it was so hard on my family, so hard on my family. And I kept saying that I was going to go to Switzerland for um, assisted suicide yeah. because I never wanted to botch my suicide. Um, so you, I had a really big fear of that. So this, at this point then, you, you were, before you spoke about, you know, accepting death and, and things like that. Yeah. But now you, yeah. you actually were... You were actually contemplating it, or were you actually just saying? Oh, no, I don't mean that, I don't mean that pedantic. I just mean that were you kind of just saying, you know, I want to end. You know, like you go, oh, you know what, I want. I want. No, I wanted it. I was like, it's happening. Like, I want to go to Switzerland. I want to join. Like, I found the organisation that I need to join in order to have um, assisted suicide. You know, I had all these uncurable illnesses. I was fairly certain that they would surely accept me um, with everything that I had going wrong with me. Like, I just, every turn, it seemed that, like, you know, I couldn't catch a break. Like, how how much more could go wrong with me? Like, do I need an anvil to fall on my head next? Like, do you know what I mean? Like, I just yeah, felt yeah. like I couldn't catch a break. Um, you know, everything was just going wrong for me. It was just ridiculous. And I just couldn't anymore. And, yeah, I wasn't going to, you know, try and overdose or anything like that because I just, the thought of, you know, potentially causing brain damage to myself or something like that and then having to live like that because knowing my luck, that's what was going to happen to me, you know. But no. And my family were devastated, you know. It was hard on them to hear me talking like this and they brought me around. They brought me around. Um, this went on for many months. I barely left the house. I was too ill to for majority of it. I developed like agoraphobia. I was so scared of people. I I forgot how to socialize basically. Um, I was scared to talk to anyone. I was scared of what they'd think of me, um, how they'd perceive me. Uh, I I was a mess. I was total mess. Like the worst rock bottom of my life. I was just a total mess. I had to have two subsequent endometriosis surgeries. One was only two months after my brain surgery. It was just like, I can't take anymore. Like, 
my life is just so bad. Well, in a short space of time as well, you would, you would say. It's not like over the course of... Yeah, it was such a short space of time. And I was just like, you know, for God's sake, like my whole life is just illness and pain and just nothing. Like, you know, I wanted to get married young and have a family and be a mother like that was my goals really like I didn't have grandiose plans to be an astronaut or a rock yeah, star yeah. or like you know or even to you know climb the corporate ladder and do that like I didn't have huge like that was simple plans get married have a family be a great wife and mother and I couldn't even do that you know I had an emotionally abusive relationship with someone who took me for granted for eight years and made me feel awful about myself. Well, I suffered through illness and nearly died and, you know, suffered through all my teens with the same thing. I had a mental breakdown, you know, kept getting sicker and sicker and sicker, you know, at every turn got something new, kicked down, kicked down, kicked down. I was like, what next? What next? What else is going to happen to me? But thankfully, thankfully, my family and my close friends were such an amazing support to me that they refused to give up on me and they pulled me out of that dark, dark place that I was in and they made me keep going to therapy, go to therapy, keep going, keep going. Even when I was like, you know, literally, I cannot do this anymore. Like, and I'd just be visceral tears, just bellowing I cannot do this they know you're going to keep going you're going to keep going and they they pulled me out of it I don't know how I do not know how but that they, they did and I'm forever grateful for that like seriously because god knows how really but they did and um they convinced me to medically retire from my job because I was constantly on sick leave, obviously. Like, look what I've done this time. You know, this is from, we're talking 2011 through to 2018. Um, they convinced me to medically retire, take the pressure off myself to stop, you know, trying to do my returns to work and perform. And I took a pilgrimage to the Middle East to go to Israel and Palestine. I have very strong faith. I have very strong faith, which helped me through a lot of dark times. And that was a life-changing thing for me. I'd always wanted to do. You spoke about faith. Always. You spoke about faith. Yes. Is that, yes. Did that come from as a teenager or does it, is that some of that? Always, my whole life. Well, that's ever, ever since I can remember. This is, why, this is why I say to you, this is why I said to you earlier about, you said the doctors helped you pull through and they did. You said your, your family yep. had pulled through and it did. But what it, what it boils down to, I would say, is it's you. Yes, they help you, yeah. but it boils down to you. It's about your... You you must have had... This is the reason why I asked you about the way you spoke, the way you speak now and the way you spoke then and things like that. They must have yeah. Been, and you even said that you didn't want to commit suicide in this way. You wanted to go... So you basically wanted to travel and have that being you know yeah i'd even planned like i'm going to now go and commit suicide basically with the assisted suicide in switzerland but prior to doing that i'm going to finally see israel and palestine well, on my what, way well, like I'm, i was so matter of fact like well, i will make it to israel and palestine well that's what i'm saying there must have been 
it's, there's a strength there. There's a strength in you. And obviously that was a good... And I was, I was thinking, where's this strength coming from? Obviously there's a faith there. You, then you have people... you coping. I with do them. have a strong faith. Maybe yeah. that's it. Yeah, that's what it is. Maybe you, from, from you that's what it is. Yeah, yeah okay. because you, to go through those things, those, men, you know, the operations, <clears throat> the sickness, the illnesses, the nausea, and you speak about that quite a lot, the nausea. I mean, that, you know... Yeah, it's it's one of the things that kills me most is the yeah. freaking nausea. Yeah, that's, what, that's, what I, that's what I thought, because you mentioned it a lot. And that's one of the things that's impacted you a lot. I didn't even realise I'm doing it, yeah. The trauma of a child, the trauma, the the anxiety, the depression, all these things in a short space of time. There's got to be something. Yeah, people can pull us back, but if we don't want to be pulled back, we won't. (laughs) That's the bottom line. That's fact. That is fact. Yes, you are 100% right. You've got to help yourself. You've got to help yourself. You've come from somewhere. and maybe it's your upbringing, like you said, and part of your faith. And now you've said faith. That's part of it. Your faith has helped you to, yeah, to lift you up. Um, and yeah, there must be a strength in the fact that you say there must be a strength in the fact that you saying I want to go to, I want to travel miles and miles away to go and do to to die. Well, that's a strength yes. because you, you, you yeah. say that in yeah. in a kind of strange yeah. way. That is a strength. Um, yeah. And so that's the reason why I was trying to pick at you, trying to think of where's this coming from? Um, and it's not about, yeah. yes, there's other people that help you and they're part of your coping yeah. mechanisms, but it's you. It's down, This is down to you. It's your body, your mind, what pulls you through. And it's, you know, part of it is, is your resilience. No, it's true. My, my faith is very important to me and it has been a driving force. It's true. Through a lot of this, through a lot of this. Yeah. And I don't openly talk about it a lot because I know in this day and age, it's controversial to talk about faith and spirituality, which is funny because, you know, years ago it never would be because most people had some type of faith. Yeah, yeah, that's so true. Whatever it may be or whatever that may look like to that person. But nowadays we live in a, you know, in a society full of atheists. So if you talk about faith, it's like you can be, you know, shunned. And so I don't openly talk about it a lot. So, um, yeah, but your faith, yeah, your you, faith doesn't There you have it. I am. I am a spiritual person. Yeah, our faith doesn't have to be religious or or these things. I am religious. I'm a Catholic. There you have it. But more than a Catholic, I am a spiritual being. Yeah. Like, I am a Catholic. I'm a Christian. Um, Like, those things do not define me. Most importantly, though, is is my relationship to God, whatever that means to you, however that looks to you, whatever that is. And that that has helped me so much, so much. And I think that, um, you know, the most important thing for anyone battling chronic illness is to have, you know, a family support system um, or friends or whatever around them. Therapy, like I said, is so important. Um, Medication, if you're open to it can help you so much antidepressants anti-anxiety meds i think are so important um a lot of people are really anti giving them a whirl but um faith and spirituality um however that may look to you and like you know meditation and such for me that's prayer call it what you will meditational prayer that that reflection time um it's invaluable it is invaluable and it's a form of mindfulness and it can it can literally save you 
in in times when you're struggling and i don't mean it can save you not like that i mean like when you're in a you know really tough spot and you're you're struggling with horrific pain and you're like oh my god like is this pain i'm gonna end you go into like a, a mindfulness type state with prayer or um you know uh meditation whatever you want to call that it's such a helpful tool and you know I guess unless you've experienced it, you don't necessarily know. But, um, oh, it has been a lifesaver for me, literally. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was going to ask you as well. Did you like that? Yeah. Did you like that one? Yeah, I did. <laughs> <laughs> have, you, have you always maintained, because obviously I'm speaking to you now and I wasn't speaking to you 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Have you always kind of had this personality and... Or is it this something that's kind of come now as a result of all the things you've been through? What personality is the that? Personality just me, of... how I am now. Yeah, just Joe. I would say so. I don't. I don't think I've changed at all, really. I mean, um, I would like to think I've evolved and developed a lot. Yeah. I'm very proud of that. That's been through a lot of therapy and um, self-discovery. Uh, I think, you know, people should forever be evolving. And like I said, you know, I've been through some really rough patches. I was taken for granted. I was walked all over, Um, not just by my partner, but by, you know, a toxic um, boss that I had as well. And by, you know, I've had friends in the past that, you know, weren't real friends. And, you know, when you get sick, you really find out who your true friends are as well, which is unfortunate. When you're sick or any of those things, that's when you find out who your true friends are. Yeah, 100%. But, um, you know, I learned through therapy and such how to assert myself, how to value myself better and how to, you know, how to stand on my own two feet better you know so much so much you know i have a long way to go still i'm nowhere near where i need to be by any means but i'm so much further in my journey than where i first started like i was like a scared little girl 10 years ago and i would say that i'm a woman now finally (laughs) but i would like to be a much stronger woman than i am now and i have a lot of work to do and I can, I plan on doing lots more work. And I think that people that can recognize that it's really important to do that, um, that we need to be constantly evolving and, and working on ourselves. Yeah. Um, and I'm aware of the time, because obviously we've gone, you know, I know you want to- Yes, yes, I have to scoot. <laughs> yeah, so I was gonna say to you, what would you, I, I'm gonna have a conversation with you again, because it'd be, I wanna talk to you again about this, um, not just about this, but just, little bits about it and things because I know you've got to, mm-hmm. you've got to go um, what would you say you know you kind of said what you'd say to people but can anybody get hold of you and where can they get hold of you um, the best place to get hold of me would definitely be Instagram um, it's pretty easy my name Lauren Setti so keep it simple there um, I'm always open to talking to people I you know I know that so many people uh overwhelmed when they get diagnosed with chronic illness it's a huge overwhelming experience and so like i said i'm more than happy to talk to people especially those with you know ibd 
inflammatory bowel disease or endometriosis, adenomyosis, you know, those are big ones that, you know, I talk to people about. But anyone who's been diagnosed with a chronic illness or anyone who's struggling with anything at all, like, you know, I'm, I'm here to talk to people. Um, I know how it feels. If anything I've said resonates with anyone and they want to chat up, I'm more than happy to talk to anyone. And um, I really want to reiterate to people that have been diagnosed with a chronic illness, please, please, please get counselling, get a therapist. It is so, so important because you may think you have it all together and that you have everything in place, but I can assure you, you cannot do it alone. It is so hard. It is such a hard thing. Your whole life is is going to change. It's never going to be the same again. It's, that's how can anyone deal with that, really? Yeah. Two things before we alone. Go. Two things before we go. What does life look like yeah. now? You know how you're feeling. And second thing, spiders. I keep hearing about. I've heard about it for years as a child, hearing about spiders in Australia, <laughs> and yeah, yeah, you have to be careful if you go to the outhouse and blah blah blah. And spiders yeah, okay, so we don't have outhouses because we're a developed country and we have flushing toilets in our houses. <laughs> Get with the times, like I would say. Um, yeah, we have um, spiders in Australia. Um, a couple of them are fairly dangerous. One of them, called the Sydney Funnel Web, is very dangerous, and if it bites you you're in big trouble um but they only live in certain places and on the coast and whatnot so it's really not that big of a deal spiders aren't too bad here and australians get used to living with them so you know some of them keep the insects away and they live outside you know keep all the other annoying little spiders away so no big deal as for life for me and how i'm feeling like i said constantly evolving it's hard it's not easy living with chronic illness and you know I have to keep on top of it like I said I'm waiting to see a psychiatrist that I've been waiting six months to see I have to you know keep on top of this as much as I ever did it's it's doesn't necessarily get easier it's just that you learn to accept it and um, learning to accept it is a big thing that's a big important thing that you know, anyone has to do when they have chronic illness because if you don't and you battle against and you try and lead a normal life, you're going to have a really tough time of it because your life is never going to be normal. Um, I hope one day to, like I said, be able to meet someone and settle down. Um, in COVID times, it's a little rough, but, you know, I remain optimistic. My heart's open. Um, you know, I just want to... I have, I have simple pleasures in life I love hanging out with my family my nieces my beautiful friends um, I hope the borders open soon I hope the pandemic gets under control and I can travel again and you know run my businesses and you know live a happy life with what I've been given I, I don't have crazy plans and aspirations I just want to work with what I've been given Thank you. And Does that answer your question? No, no, it's, no it's <laughs> brilliant. That's the vibe. No, no, it's brilliant. And, uh, you know, um, I've loved, I've, I really, I've really enjoyed um, chatting with you and having this conversation. Likewise. And, the, you know, the life journey. And I'm sure there's going to be, you know, I really want to get, get you back on to talk about some of the, the intricacies of it. Um, okay. But, yeah. Um, well, thank you for having me, Andrew. Yeah, no, it's been, it's really, I mean, honestly, I'm, I, you know, people might say, oh, you say it all the time. No, I don't say it all the time. This one, I mean, I really enjoyed, <laughs> I really enjoyed our conversation. You, you know, you've, you've been 
very open and and you know almost you know your personality is kind of bubbly not kind of you're bubbly so it's it's, it's been nice it's been nice talking to you so thank you oh thank you thank you and neighbors every <laughs> I'd, I'd <laughs> <laughs> All right, and that was Men on Us. <laughs>